0: Thanks, Tim. All right, please turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 15. Uh, My daughter, Anna Joy, loves animals. She loves all animals. She especially uh, loves cats. And so when we were in Israel, uh, she took pictures of all of the stray cats throughout the nation of of Israel. And when we got home, actually she made a a calendar for herself commemorating uh, the visit there. And on the cover of her calendar is a stray cat. And, um, you know, it was funny because as we are traveling around, every time I would turn around, she would be sitting and holding and petting a stray cat. And every time she found a stray cat, she's petting a stray cat, uh, she would say, Daddy, can we take it home? Right? (laughs) And, um, you know, of course the answer is no. First of all, because... It's a cat, right? But, you know, these were these nasty cats. They were diseased cats. They were mangy on the outside and flea-bitten, and obviously their diet had not been good. They probably had worms inside, and they were swollen. They were just, they were horrible-looking cats, and yet my daughter had compassion on the cats of Israel. She loved the cats of Israel, and she wanted to take all of them home and care for them. And so I want you to ponder a question this morning, and, and you probably have never thought about this before. But if we were to set out to transform the cat population of Israel, what would we do? What would be required to, to transform these mangy, nasty cats into a healthy cat community? Or we'd have to um, bathe them. Right? We'd have to, to de-lice them and get the fleas off of them and give them a good diet and shelter and love, and obviously supply cats with something that no cat has, which is a reason to exist. We'd have to give all of these things (laughs) to create a healthy, strong cat community, right? Now, my my, my analogy has a point. Here's my point. My point is this. Many times, uh, churches look like a gang of feral cats. They fight and claw and scratch at one another, you wouldn't want them individually in your home. You wouldn't want them corporately, taking up residence in your neighborhood. They don't look like the Bride of Christ. The church is called to be an aroma of Jesus Christ. This this fragrance that illustrates the beauty of Jesus. We're to uh, we're told adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. But oftentimes the church looks like um, a gang of feral cats. They don't look like the Bride of Christ. So what does it take? For the church to be the church? What does it take for the church to be a healthy, vibrant community of Jesus Christ? And maybe more specifically, what can you do to help this church become or remain that kind of community? So this morning, I want to look at seven marks. Okay, Seven marks of a vibrant, healthy, growing Christian community. And then specifically, maybe challenge you to ways that you can help this church become that kind of church. All right, so I want you to read with me beginning in Luke chapter 15... And verse 1. Luke 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten, coins, 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Vibrant, healthy, growing, dynamic church seeks the lost, passionately seeks the lost. And when I was a kid, when I would lose something, lose lose my shoes, I couldn't find my tennis shoes, or I'd lose my backpack, my mom every time, inevitably, she would say, Did you pray? Did you pray about it? Did you ask the Lord where it is? Because, you know, uh, God doesn't lose anything. God knows where everything is. Did you pray? And so we would stop right there and we would pray that uh, I could find whatever item that I had lost. And, you know, th- the result was, always left me very deeply convicted because we almost always found the thing shortly after we prayed for the thing. And that left me conv- conflicted because, one, I wanted to find the item that I had lost, but I really disliked it that Mom was right again. And so, I, you know, I felt this internally. I'm like, ah, Ah, she's right again, right? Well, my kids have have picked up on that. Now when I lose something, they will say to me, well, you know, grandma would tell you to pray. (laughs) Like, You know, just, ah, I can't. You know, you can never get away from that. So, well, grandma would tell you to pray. Did you pray? Have you prayed yet, dad? I know you lost it, but, you know, God doesn't lose anything. He knows where everything is, dad. Should we pray? Okay, let's pray, right? You know, let's pray. And we'll find it because nothing is actually lost to God. I want you to read with me again, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. These are the people who are not high in society, but there's something in them that's being drawn to Jesus. See, God is drawing them. He hasn't really lost them, He knows right where they are, but He's drawing them. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they begin to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable saying, and actually he doesn't tell them one parable. He tells them three parables, but the three parables are one parable because they all have the same point, And that is this, God is drawing sinners, broken people to himself because that's what God loves to do. And when one is found, what does heaven do? Heaven throws a party. Heaven's celebrating. Heaven's getting loud and ruckus and joyful because that's what God loves. Loves. And so what God is doing is he is drawing men and women to himself. They're not lost to him. He's drawing them so that we can go out and seek them, so that we can go to them and find them and participate in what God is doing in seeking the lost. When I was in uh, second grade, we were living in Oregon, and some new neighbors moved in next door to us my mom, typically, in you know, her typical fashion, she went over to meet the new neighbors. She brought them something to eat. And as she was standing there at the door, a uh, woman opened the door and she said, you know, I just, I really can't talk to you right now. I, I just, I don't have anything in me to, to meet the neighbors. I'm, I'm going through something in our family and, and no one would understand. I thank you for what you brought, but I don't have time. My mom said, well, what is it? And she said, well, my husband was just diagnosed with a brain tumor. And my mom said, well, my husband had a brain tumor. See, when I was, uh, mom was pregnant with me, my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor. They thought that it was malignant. They thought it would, that he was going to die. It, it turned out that it was benign, uh, and they were able to remove the brain tumor, which if you've met my dad, that explains some of the personality kind of stuff, but <laughs> we'll leave that alone for now because there's a spiritual point to all of this. Uh, my mom uh, would not say that she is an evangelist. She'd say, no, I have the gift of hospitality. But my mom was willing to be sent, and in the course of these conversations, she was able to lead the mother and the father and the children all to Christ. They weren't lost to God. He knew right where they were, and so he was drawing them near to the church, to my mom, who wouldn't say, I have the spiritual gift of evangelism, but she was willing to be sent uh, yesterday, we had our uh, furniture giveaway, and I want to say church, wow, way to go. Um, there, w- there was more stuff in those two buildings than I've ever seen. In all of the years that we have done, it was, it was crazy packed. I thought, I, I wasn't even sure how it would be possible to arrange it, let alone get everything out, because our church historically has been so generous. I think we've been doing this for about, about 20 years, and I want to say church, well done, there are international students out there, they're, they're not lost to God, but God is drawing them and he's actually putting them really close to us. And we were, we were able to serve 350 international students yesterday just through the love of Christ, give them some furniture to go in their house. And I remember times that I've gone out and delivered, you, you walk in and there's absolutely nothing in the apartment whatsoever. You're able to just, just serve and love and demonstrate the beauty, the aroma of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say, church, well done. Uh, one of our, our fellows made a, a short video. I just want, want to show you uh, the reaction of a couple of the students a lot of my Chinese friends uh, told me th- those people from church they are very nice so I really should have the chance to uh, take part in this uh, big family to feel it. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty excited and yeah, setting up my home, my own home. I feel uh, it's, it's like now we are part of the community so uh, as a community we are sharing things that's a very good thing and uh, I have never seen such thing before. Mm-hmm. is that sweet? Yeah, way to go, Grace Bible Church. That was awesome. Now, one of the things that we have consistently heard through, heard through the years from international students is that they, they hear about the generosity of this church in their home country. Right? Students come here and they study, they go home, and they say, if you go to Texas A&M University, you need to go and visit there because they will share with you. They will Give to you. Not lost to God. He knows where they are everywhere in the world, and He's bringing them to us. He's also probably brought uh, friends into your life. He's brought coworkers who sit in a desk next to you. He's brought family members that you are near that you can seek out. And what I want to challenge you first with, church, this morning is this a healthy, vibrant, dynamic church loves the lost. And I'm not talking about evangelistic programs. I'm saying that deep within us, there's this longing to see those who don't know Jesus Christ and know Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge you this morning to ask God to to continuously stir up your heart for the lost. May God give you a heart that is broken for the lost so that you want to seek and save along with Jesus that which is lost. That's the first mark of a healthy, dynamic church. Second, a vibrant church proclaims Jesus. In other words, once the lost come near. We share the gospel with them. We share the gospel with them. It's not just that furniture is given and, and bellies are filled, but the gospel is brought because the gospel is the means of salvation. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And, and, and folks don't need to just be warm and fed. They need to know Jesus. They need to have the debt of sins removed. And so when we share the gospel, we share it clearly so they know how to trust in him and have eternal life. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3 Paul says for I deliver to you as of first importance right this is the great apostle Paul man the guy he knew a lot of theology and he was a great preacher but he said if you hear anything from me remember the thing that I said to you is most important is this that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the lost are found and they come near, the gospel has to be clear. It is the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of our sins. Not because he had done anything wrong. He was perfectly sinless and innocent. But he died to pay the debt for our sins. He was buried. He really did, in fact, die. There were witnesses to his death. But there were also witnesses to his resurrection. He was raised from the dead, demonstrating that God accepted that payment for sins for all people for all time. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. That's the gospel. That took me 15 seconds. When the lost come near to you, Can you say the words of the gospel, which are the words of eternal life, and not muddy the issue, and not confuse the issue, and not add anything into the gospel of Jesus Christ? Of course, there are, are consequences in our lives, things that happen that are wonderful fruits of the gospel, but the gospel is a very simple, clear message. Believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, and you will be saved. That's the gospel. You know, I find it interesting, the the parallel, if you read the beginning of Philippians and the beginning of Galatians. In Philippians, Paul says, you know, there are people out there, they're proclaiming the gospel, and they're doing it from selfish motives. They actually hear that I'm in prison, and they think that it'll make me suffer to hear that they're out making more converts to Jesus Christ. And you know what I say to that? I say, God bless them. (laughs) because you know, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I'll let God worry about the motives, as long as the gospel is clear. Now, in Galatians 1, Paul says there are some people who are coming in and they are adding effort, human effort and work to the gospel. They're saying it's not just believe in Jesus, but also do these good things. He says, you know, I don't care if an angel comes down from heaven or if somehow I get kicked in the head and I start screwing up the gospel. Let me be accursed. Let me go to hell. Let those angels go to hell. Anybody who messes with the gospel, let them be accursed. And then he tells a story about his interaction with Peter. Peter had the gospel clear. Peter knew the gospel. Peter was a believer. Peter was an apostle, for heaven's sake. But then there were people who came in and put some pressure on Peter, and he began to to muddy the gospel. And what he did was he began to add works to the free gift of eternal life. And so Paul gets up in front of everybody and, you know, there are those moments in Scripture that I think, man, I would have liked to have been there to see that. Wow. Paul confronts Peter. Whew. But the reason that he did it is because this wasn't a secondary issue. I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the gospel. Don't mess it up. Right? A vibrant, healthy, growing community clearly understands the message of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so I want to challenge you, church. Here's your second challenge in the morning. Do you really deeply understand the gospel? Or have you believed it for yourself? And if I asked you right now, tell me the gospel. Man, you could just nail it. You know, I, I love those, those uh, baptism interviews, particularly when, when kids will come in, and I'm thinking, oh, they really understand the gospel or not. And I begin to ask them, tell me their testimony, and they just nail it, right? They just, they just nail it. They clearly understand And I say, well, you know, are you a a good person or are you a sinner? Well, there are things good to me, but I'm a sinner. You know, I hit my sister and I do this and that. You know, okay, they understand sin, right? I disobey. They get it. And I need Jesus Christ. So, well, are you getting baptized because you want to get saved? You go, no, it's not. It's not. Baptism isn't about my salvation. I believed in Jesus Christ and it's through faith alone. And man, when people can say that to me, I love it when I hear it in a child. I love it when I hear it in anybody. The gospel is not convoluted. It's perfectly clear. Church, I want to challenge you. Do you know how to present the gospel without muddying the waters at all? A vibrant, healthy, dynamic church is filled with people who can do that. The loss come near, and we know how to present the gospel. Third, a vibrant church knows the word. I want you to turn to the book of Acts with me. Chapter two. Acts chapter two and verse 42. This is the end of the description of the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. Let's read in, in the beginning of verse 41. It says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, the, the Spirit has just been poured out upon the church for the first time. Miraculous things have taken place. Thousands of people have, added, have be, been added to the church. The church has just exploded. It's a megachurch on day one. And what do they want? They want more. They want the apostles teaching. And I just imagine, you know, these thousands of people all sitting around with their journals and their Jerusalem study Bibles, right? And they're going, oh my gosh, give us more. Give us more. We cannot have enough. And I mean literally hour after hour, they were sitting and listening, breaking for a meal and coming back because they needed the word. Church, the word is our food. I pray for myself this continuously because um, so much of my time, it feels like during the week, is, is preparing to give the word out. And so I pray continuously, God, let me be hungry just for the word for myself. And let me long for it just for me because it's my food. I need this food. In college, I memorized these verses from Isaiah. It says this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And they do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The word of God is living and active. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It does what it was meant to do. It transforms lives. Men and women, that is what we need. We need the word of God. Last year, 2000, no, two years ago, 2014, there were 3,700 churches that closed their doors. Right, 3,700 church closing, churches, churches failed. And You know, one of the primary reasons that churches die in the United States is because they don't preach the word. They don't teach the word. They don't study the word. They don't know the word. Instead, uh, entertainment has triumphed over exposition of the word and I will tell you, I don't, I don't have any problem with smoking lights on a Sunday morning as long as when the smoke clears, the word is taught. Right? Whatever, in whatever way culturally connects with the people who are coming to worship, I don't have any problem with that as long as the word is taught because it is the word that transforms lives. The word of God is powerful. And churches are dying across this country because they abandon the teaching of the word. Paul told Timothy, chapter 4, preach the word. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to the myths. True in Paul's day? True in our day. So church, I want to challenge us. And okay, Here's your third challenge. Ask God to stir up your hunger afresh for the word of God. Get back into the word of God. If you are not studying on your own or reading on your own or if you're not in a group where you're challenging and stirring one another up to go deeper in the word, to not be satisfied with a shallow understanding, but to go deep in the word, I want to challenge you. Renew your commitment to know and love the word of God. Now, fourth, a vibrant church manifests the spirit. Turn back one chapter to Acts chapter 1. And verse 4. Acts 1, verse 4. Gathering them together, and Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what he had promised, for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So uh, why did Jesus tell them to wait? Right? They already understood the gospel. Right? They got it. They'd seen Jesus die. They'd seen him buried. They'd seen him resurrected. They knew the gospel message. So why did Jesus not say, now go out and get busy and share the gospel? Instead he said, don't do anything yet. So you just need to wait. Because their calling would be way more difficult than they could possibly accomplish in their own power. They would have to suffer more and serve more and sacrifice more than they could possibly do in their own strength. And so they needed to wait. They needed for the Spirit of God to be poured out upon them and to transform them. They needed the Spirit of God. Read with me now chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. Now they, that is uh, the the, uh, self-righteous spiritual leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, the high priest, says now as they observe the confidence of Peter and John... And understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They look at these guys and they say, wait a second. They still stink like fish, man. These are fishermen. These are not, these aren't scholars. These are just ordinary people. And yet they have wisdom. They have insight. They have power. They have courage. What's happening here? And so they get together. They send them out of the room. They get together. What are we going to do? You know, a miracle has been performed. The people saw the miracle. How do we deal with this? Well, let's just, we better just threaten them. We've got to threaten them so they stop this. Otherwise, they are going to take away our authority, our power. Chapter 4, verse 18. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge but we cannot speak, stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Men and women, this is, this is a remarkable transformation. Remember, just days earlier, a slave girl had come up to Peter and said, you know, you have a Galilean accent. You sound like you're from the north. She said, I recognize you. You were with Jesus. And he said, not me, not me. He ran away and hid rather than being identified with Jesus. Now, the leaders of his nation, the most powerful men in his nation say, if you don't stop, we're going to hurt you. So bring it on. (laughs) You can beat me. You can stone me. You can take off my head. But I've seen the resurrection of the Son of God, and I'm filled with the power of the Spirit of God. I cannot stop. Men and women, that is the power of God's spirit available and living and dwelling in you that that makes you so brave and so courageous and so different that you cannot stop preaching. That transforms your character into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You become more and more and more like God himself. Brave and powerful and courageous and kind and giving and loving and loyal he says to the disciples, wait. You understand the gospel, but you need the power of the fullness of God's spirit poured out upon you. And the spirit does transform transforms the whole community. Look in chapter, 30, chapter 4, verse 32. It says, the congregation, the whole congregation, of those who had believed, they were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to any as they had need. In other words, the power of the the Spirit was so evident in the community that they stopped even clinging to their own stuff, and they gave, and they gave, and they gave out of generous hearts. We talked about sanctification last week. This is my fourth challenge to you. Ask God's Spirit if right now he isn't identifying a particular area in your life in which he wants to radically, Acts chapter 2, transform the way that you think and feel and act and what you love in life. If he doesn't want to just come in in the power of of his Spirit and just change you, is there a particular area in your life that God wants to work on? Vibrant, healthy church manifests the, the power of God's Spirit. Fifth, a vibrant, healthy church shows love for others. Right, the first mark of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, all of these other areas of character. But the first is love. Apostle Paul will say the goal of our instruction is love. Right, this is a good word continuously for us as a Bible church to remember. The goal of our instruction is not education. The goal of our instruction is not information. It's not more God data. The goal of our instruction is transformation, particularly that the Spirit would cause us to love one another, because that is what is attractive to the world. Jesus said it like this to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, or in the same way that I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people will know that you follow me, if you love one another because this is what I do. I love you and how do I love you? I give all to you. I just I give and I give and I give. Another statistic for you. In 2013, there were 250,000 churches in the United States. Of those 250,000 churches, 200,000 we're stagnant or declining. Okay? That means 80% of the churches in the United States were, were adding no members or were losing people. 80%. Why does the church uh, become unhealthy and shrivel and die? The church doesn't love one another. The church doesn't love one another. What happens in many churches is uh, there, are, there are conflicts that go unresolved. Um, again, Put in your mind that imagery, feral cats, right? There's scratching and there's clawing and there's no reconciliation. There's no forgiveness. So you know what? The world can do that. The world does that all the time. What sets us apart and makes us genuinely supernatural in the world is when we forgive, when we release the debt because we love and we give even to our enemies. That's supernatural. That's something that the world can't pull off and that's what draws them to Christ, Frederick Buchner wrote a wonderful little book. It's called Wishful Thinking. It's a little, a short creative theology. And he says this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. Right, you think about what I would say if I saw that person to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And I would say the skeleton at the feast becomes the church. And the church withers and dies because the church doesn't love. My fifth challenge to you. Perhaps there is someone in your life that God is saying, Love your enemy. Forgive your enemy. Release the debt. Not because they deserve to be released, but because I released you of a debt. Release the debt. For the church to remain vibrant and healthy and dynamic and growing, the bitterness and dissension has to be removed. Then we'll be really different from the world. Six, a vibrant, dynamic, healthy church makes disciples This is what the church does. Matthew chapter 28, Great Commission. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And I'm with you for this purpose, that you would make disciples. This is the ministry of the church. All these, these, these previous five marks of a healthy church are moving toward this one goal. Church, this is why we exist. We exist to make disciples of all nations. Here's your third statistic of the morning. 95% of all church programs in the United States serve the members only. Okay, 95% of church programs in the United States serve the members only. Churches die because they become inwardly focused rather than looking outward and saying we exist for the world, right? for the glory of God and for the good of the world. That's why we exist. And I'm guessing that uh, many of you have seen this photo uh, from uh, a couple weeks ago, beginning of the Olympics. If you missed it, here's, a, here's the background. This is a 200 meter butterfly race and uh, Michael Phelps is on the bottom Chad LaCleau, who's a South African swimmer, is on the top. And apparently they have a long history. But right before this race, Chad LaCleau was taunting Michael Phelps, right? He's walking around. He's shadow boxing, He's looking at him, staring at him, right? And if you saw the other viral picture, Phelps is just, he's man, he is focused, right? He's looking at him. He's just focused to get in the pool. And Anna Joy and I were actually watching this race. And as the race began to unfold, I, I hit her. I go, Joy, look at this. Look at this. LeClo is as he's coming out of the water every time, he's, he's looking over at Phelps. And he did it like four or five times during the race. I'm like, I said, you know, that is going to slow him down. It's, you, you can't look at the other swimmers. You've got to look at the goal. Look at the mark. And so sure enough, you know, LeClo, who's been taunting him for the race and all this kind of stuff, he got fourth, right? You know, and... Those Americans would go, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's right. He didn't even get a medal. Now, could he have beaten Phelps if he had kept his eye on the prize? No, because he's Michael Phelps, right? (laughs) So, of course not. This is Michael Phelps, right? But could he have maybe gotten a bronze or a share of a bronze? Maybe, maybe. But it it, it didn't happen. Why? Because he's looking around him. He's distracted. And it was awesome because Phelps, where, where are his eyes? His eyes are on the goal right? He is in his lane. You know what our lane is, church? Make disciples of all nations. There are all kinds of great activities that churches can get involved in, and we can spend tons of our money on ourselves, but why are we here? We're here to make disciples of all nations. That's why the church exists. Now, when um, I want to read to you one psalm, that I think is a visionary psalm. It says this, even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to all who are to come. The psalmist says this, I want to always be about the next generation of worshipers. And when I began working for Grace Bible Church, um, our, our oldest elder was Dick Davison. Dick was also, in my opinion, our most visionary elder. We had other visionary elders, but, you know, Dick nagged me with vision. I mean, he would, he would drop in my office uh, on a weekly basis, and he would say, Brian, if, if, if you had a million dollars right now, what would you do? What would your vision be? How would you make disciples more effectively? Now Dick would probably come in, and he would say, what if you had 10 million or 20 million? Dick is now with the Lord, okay? He, was, he, was, he was a, became a, a close, close personal friend, and I loved his vision, okay? This is Dick. Even when I'm old and gray, I don't want to be thinking about myself. I want to be thinking about that next generation of worshipers. And so Dick was constantly on me. He said, Brian, I don't think you really even understand the vision of this church. Let me tell you again. Right? This is what we're about. You just constantly think about the next generation. And you may have noticed when you came in here that our music uh, is fairly contemporary. It's not crazy contemporary, but it's pretty contemporary. Uh, I will tell you, uh, Dick did not like our music at all. He said, you know what that music sounds to me like? It sounds to me like hail, bail. That's what I think of music. He said, however, if the students enjoy it, then that's a small sacrifice that I can make. Because we need to be thinking about the next generation. Students Young professionals, young families, you need to know there's a reason we do what we do and why we, we lean toward more contemporary worship, why, why we're always wanting to look to your generations because the rest of us will pass off, this, off the scene and you need to have a vision for the generations coming after you and not think about yourselves, but think about that next generation. And so there are people around you who are older who are making great sacrifices because they want you to have a vision for spiritual multiplication, Now, you may have also known that we frequently do hymns in with our praise songs. That's because there's a rich history of hymns in the church, and you who are younger need to understand that and learn to worship with those who are older and appreciate the way that they worship, because this is the church, right? Cradle to grave. That's the nature of the church. And so you're called upon to make sacrifices. Those who are further down in their walk with the Lord are called upon to make greater sacrifices so that the church can be one in our mission, which is... Make disciples of all nations, right? That is why we are here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be studying the book of 2 Timothy this semester. Paul says this to Timothy as he greets him. Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy, my beloved son. Paul was not just an apostle to the masses. He invested in individuals. And my challenge to you is this. Learn how to make disciples. It might be one, it might be two, five, ten, make disciples. God's, uh, Jesus' plan uh, for spreading the kingdom of God was really actually not mass evangelism. It was make disciples, spiritual multiplication. That's the slow work of the church that grows organically and multiplies. Make disciples of all nations and church. Multiply the church, right? Not just individually, but also corporately. Uh, this month marks the eighth anniversary of uh, planning of our Southwood campus. We started it in 2008, and then the recession hit. And and I, I promise you, if the recession had hit before we started, I don't think we would have had the courage to move forward. But the recession hit, and we were already committed, and then God provided. And you know, in those last, these last eight years... Uh, we, our budget has always been in the black. God has always provided for us. We've actually had surpluses that we've been be beginning to set aside for the next church plant. God has provided faithfully. We never had to cut salaries. We never had to lose staff because God consistently faithfully provided. I believe because we were right in the center of his will. Right? Plant, plant the church. Multiply the church. Make disciples individually. Make disciples through the church. The most effective evangelistic tool is ultimately long-term for a community planting churches. And so, you, know, we're, we're, you heard, we have started our third campus. It's actually our fourth because we have a Mandarin fellowship as well uh, that began through the vision of a chemical engineering professor and his wife probably 20 years ago. Now, we just hired our first pastor about four and a half years ago, Samuel Fu, for the Mandarin fellowship, installed elders two years ago. That fellowship is up and rolling. We started Creekside Campus looking at land for that place and my expectation is church that we need to be looking for the next site after that because the church is not being planted fast enough in Bryan College Station. In fact, uh, we've had opportunities to meet with other church pastors and church leaders here in this town, and you know what I always tell them? Why don't you plant a church? And plant plant right next to us because particularly you look at the south end of College Station, there are thousands and thousands of new homes that are being built in the next 5, 10, 15 years, and the church just isn't being planted fast enough. In fact, we're told that about 3,500, 4,000 churches fail a year. About that same number are planted each year. But of the new plants, 50% of those fail. And so I'm continuously encouraging churches, multiply the church. Get a vision to multiply the church. Because what is the ministry of the church? Make disciples of all nations. So let's go into those areas and let's make sacrifices to go into those areas where there is no church Now, in the Great Commission, there's one more thing I want to point out to you. It says this, make disciples of all nations. It doesn't just say make disciples in your neighborhood or in your community, but of all nations. During the recession, the churches that did the best financially were the churches that were most committed to missions, okay? Hang with me here. During the recession, the churches that did the best financially were the churches that gave the most money away. God has a funny way about things, doesn't he? (laughs) The churches that struggled the most during the recession to pay their bills, they cut missions. It's one of the first and easiest things to cut. So they cut missions. And I talked to church after church after church that were completely eliminating their missions budget. Churches that did the best were the churches that remained committed to giving. Here at Grace, we give 20% of our budget goes to missionary salaries. About 40% of our, mission, of our budget goes to ministries that are essentially outside of the church. It's stuff we're giving away. It's missions, it's community outreach, it's student ministry. It's stuff that doesn't add to our budget. It's stuff that takes money away from our budget. About 40% of our budget, which we are committed to and we're saying, God, we're not really a wealthy church and we're 50, 60, 70% students. If we're going to be a multiplying church, which we feel like you've called us to be, then you have to provide for us. And one of the ways that God has provided for us, even though we aren't a wealthy church, is because we have people who are generous givers, who just love to give, which is a mark of the fruit of the Spirit. Healthy churches make disciples And then seventh, healthy churches, vibrant churches, uh, they worship first. Because ultimately, this is not about what we we do for God or really what we do for the world, (laughs) but what God has done for us. And so if you long to be healthy personally on an individual basis, if you want to be healthy as a church, uh, worship is first and foremost. Psalm 95 says this, so come let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Uh, even, you know, it's, it's a long list. I don't usually have seven point sermons, um, you know, perfectly honest. I remember one time I went to a Campus Crusade conference and Bill Bright had 17 points. Now, you know, I don't remember what the main idea was, the big idea. I just remember there were 17, 17 of something. And, you know, this, as I was working on this talk, I'm like, seven, man, that's a lot of points. That's a lot to remember. So uh, maybe can we boil it down to, to one thing. God may be calling you and specifically pointing out something in your life, as, as I mentioned before in the other six, but at the heart of our, our lives is worship. I challenged this as a church last year. So let, let's grow as worshipers. If we grow in nothing else, let's grow as worshipers. Let's really understand truly who God is and let's enjoy and celebrate telling God, we know who you are. And we know how great you are. And because you are so great, all of life we will just arrange around our love for you. Let's take a few moments as we close and ask God just to stir up your heart to to love him more deeply and worship him more deeply. Just a few moments silently and then Tim will close us in worship. Father, we, we pray that we would be... A sweet aroma that our praise and worship would rise up before you bring a smile to your face Father we pray that we would be a, a sweet aroma in this community and on the campus The men and women would be drawn to your son Jesus Christ because we do we live so differently and we have purpose and meaning we love one another we're transformed by your spirit Father let us be that kind of community of faith let us be the bride of Christ beautiful in the world it's in Christ's name we pray Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.